Well, thank you, worship team. That was awesome. We had some early morning adjustments, so that was that was awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, if you have children here that are ages kindergarten through third grade, and they are going uh, to children's church, they can dismiss out the back with Miss uh, Brittany. Uh, if you have children that are older than that and are staying with us, there are activities on that back table that they are welcome to grab. Uh, there's also a sermon note that goes along with the sermon. Um, if they fill that out, uh, then they come see me afterwards and I'll have uh, some candy uh, for them. Uh, but today we are continuing in our series that we're calling The Exodus, in which we are looking at uh, God's goodness, His mercy, His faithfulness uh, to rescue His people from Egypt. And, and in that we see God's goodness and faithfulness uh, as He rescues us um, from sin. And so today we begin unpacking one of the parts of the story that we are most familiar with, and that is the plagues. Uh, and the plagues come in response to Pharaoh's question back in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, if you remember. Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh, and they asked him for some time off to worship their God. And Pharaoh responds with this question. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? As we said in that sermon, uh, this is the same question that we wrestle with today. And what we see in the plagues is God stepping into this question in his mercy and revealing himself to Pharaoh, to Egypt, and to the Hebrew people. And in the same way, today, God in his mercy steps into areas of our lives in which we are holding on to, in which we are unwilling to surrender, and, he's, and where we are asking the question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And this applies to those that don't yet know Jesus, and he's calling you to trust him with his life. And it applies to those of us that are followers of Jesus. But there are areas of our lives that we are unwilling to surrender, and we're asking this question. We're asking, who is the Lord that I should obey and trust him with my family? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and trust him with my future, my relationships, my job? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and trust him with my recreation or my hobby? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and trust him with my finances? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and trust him with my addiction, with my drinking, with my dark secret? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and trust him over my comfort, my ease, and my pleasure? That list could go on and on. We all have areas of our life where God is calling us to deeper faith, to deeper trust, and we're asking this question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? So we're going to touch on the first couple of plagues today, and we're going to see God step into that question and prove himself worthy and greater than some of our greatest idols. But before we get there, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the passage of Scripture we have today, Lord. We thank you for your mercy and your goodness and your faithfulness to, to step in and, and, and help us step in and, and make us aware of those areas where we are trusting in ourselves, where we are trusting in sinking sand, Lord. God, we thank you for those times where you reveal yourself as worthy and better than. And so, God, I pray that you will do that today. And I pray that as you do that, uh, Lord, that we, we would be faithful to surrender and follow after you. God, we love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to move this mic. I feel like I got something right over my shoulder. All right. So before we get to the plagues, though, we've got to take a second and just uh, reflect on the culture of Egypt. And within that, we're going to see a lot of our culture today. So as we've seen and said throughout the series, Egypt was a pluralistic culture. Uh, they didn't believe that there was just one God, but instead they believed that there were hundreds of God. And Pharaoh himself believed himself to be a God. There was a God for everything. 
And so when Moses and Aaron speak to Pharaoh and they tell them about their God, this would not have been offensive to Pharaoh. He would have expected the Israelites to have their own gods just like he had his own gods. But when they suggest that he submit to their God, he loses it, right? He calls them lazy and he ups the workload. Why would he? Why would the all-powerful Pharaoh submit to the God of his slaves? It made no sense to him. Egypt is a pluralistic society. For others to have a God is not a surprise, but for others to claim that their God is authoritative over you, we're fighting words. As we jump back into our culture, we are a very spiritual culture as well. This is surprising, but uh, it might be surprising, but Pew Research tells us that only 3.1% of Americans are atheists, believing that there is absolutely no God whatsoever. We are a spiritual culture. People are open to there being something bigger than themselves. We don't take offense to there being a God, but when you tell me that God is authoritative over my life, that he is the only way to heaven, that he is the only way to life, that he holds moral authority over me, when we hear that, we, like Pharaoh, bristle our feathers and we're ready to fight. We as a culture and as individuals don't have a problem with the idea that there is a God or something bigger. But we do have a problem that there is a God that might have authority over my life. Even as Christians, we love God, we worship God, but we don't like it when God starts telling us what to do. We like to keep God at a distance where he can help us when we're in a bind, where he can get us to heaven. But when we can do whatever we want with this life, we like Pharaoh are not offended by the notion of God but we do struggle that God would have authority over our life. And so as we read these first couple of plagues, we are going to see God prove himself greater than the gods of Egypt, but we're also going to see himself prove himself greater than the gods or idols of our life as well. And we've talked about idols before, especially when we've been in the Old Testament. And we, for the most part, are more sophisticated than the Egyptians, right? We don't bow down before statues on our mantle place, believe that they are powerful and they're going to make us happy. But we do bow down before the idols of our day, believing that they will be the one thing that will make us happy. For us, it's not a statue, but it's a, a new job or a car or the perfect family. It's a serpent, certain economic status. It's a recreation activity. Whatever it is, we believe that's the thing that will make us happy. And we define an idol as something that has taken on ultimate worth. It's the thing that has become so important you can't imagine life being good without it. It, instead of God, becomes your primary security, fulfillment, or identity. And again, an idol is not usually a bad thing, but it's a good thing that we have made into a God thing. So what is that for you? So we, like the Egyptians, we all worship something. In addition, we, like Pharaoh, we're not so bold to say this, but we, like Pharaoh, live in a culture that has made us, the individual, the God of our world, and the primary source of truth. We live in what sociologists now call a post-truth culture. And in a post-truth culture, the source of truth is the individual alone. It's you and I. We establish our own truth instead of the facts. Post-truth was the 2016 Oxford New Word of the Year. And this is how Oxford defines it. Post-truth is an adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. We live in a culture in which objective facts are less influential than our emotions, our feelings, and our personal beliefs. 
We live in a culture in which the individual has been given the right to determine truth based on their emotions instead of objective facts. We as a culture are debating things that have been truth, objective facts for thousands of years across every culture and religion because we have said we are God and we each individually get to determine our truth. And whether we realize it or not, this creeps into each of our worldviews. We say I get to determine my truth and you get to determine your truth. There is no longer objective truth in our culture. Again, we wouldn't say this out loud, but our culture has made us the individual God of our own world, the only source of truth. We're like Pharaoh, and and we are all prone to this mindset. So the notion that there is a God of the universe who we are called to submit to, and that he has left us with a book with rules and truth to follow is the ultimate affront in our culture. My beliefs, my truth, my feelings don't have to submit to anything or anyone. And as Christians, when God steps into areas of our lives where we desire to control, we bristle at the notion that he would tell us how to live. When many read the Bible, they just simply change the words to fit their worldview instead of allowing God to shape their worldview. And that's Pharaoh, and that's us. And God has stepped into Pharaoh's life, and he has told him to submit and follow him. And Pharaoh bows his back and says, no chance. And we do the same thing. But God, in his mercy for Pharaoh, his mercy for the Egyptian people, his mercy for the Hebrews, and his mercy for us, is going to step into the story, and he's going to reveal his power, his grace, his authority, and he's going to reveal the lies and falsehoods in our lives. He's going to reveal the sinking sand in which Pharaoh and ourselves have placed our faith. And he's going to reveal himself as the God of the universe, the solid rock. All right, let's get to the first plague. We're in Exodus chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 14. And again, this is, this is God's response to Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? This is God in his mercy stepping to this question and revealing himself as greater and worthy of trust. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say this to you. Let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says, and by this you will know that I am Lord. And we're going to see that statement over and over again in the plagues. Again, this is God revealing himself to Pharaoh, to Egypt, to the Hebrews, and to us. This plague is so that you might know that I am the Lord. Verse 17. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water changed to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad, the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. We're going to pause there just for one second, because this is pretty cool, but we see this throughout the plagues. 
But there is, a, there is a significant mention of an event like this in a papyrus from the general period known, known as the Impuwer Papyrus. It actually says in Impuwer 2.10 that the Nile was blood and undrinkable. The same papyrus repeatedly mentions that the servants of the Egyptians left their masters. I love that stuff but because the, the Bible is so amazing because throughout it we have a confirmation from archaeology and extra biblical sources that it's true. That's pretty remarkable when you consider the events unfolded some 3,500 years ago. But there's, there's extra biblical evidence that documents this plague. Verse 22. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. And all the, all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water. Because they could not drink the water of the river. So this plague takes place at the center, at the heart of the Egyptian culture. The Nile River was the center of power, economics, vitality, and life for the Egyptian people. Without the Nile, the Egyptians were nothing. As the Nile goes, so does Egypt go. And, and the Nile had multiple gods and goddesses, but the primary goddess of the, of the Nile River was the goddess Happy. H-A-P-I. And she was there to provide fullness of life. They sacrifice, they worship, they bow before happy in hopes that she will give them fullness, the goodness of life they desire. And God in his mercy steps in and he's going to show them that they have placed their hope, their life in what is false. He exposes their belief as a lie. Happy cannot provide fullness of life, but only God can. And God does the same for us today. Again, we don't bow before a goddess named Happy, but we do do whatever we think it will take to find fullness or happiness of life. We believe the new car, the next vacation, new friends, new home, new job, the gap year, minimalism, the next relationship, a child will be what brings us the fullness of life we desire. We are always looking for and willing to sacrifice everything for that thing, that person, that relationship that we think will bring us the good life we desire. And it will always let us down and will always leave us empty. And when we are let down, that is God in his mercy stepping in and letting us know that there has to be something more. Jesus in John 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and that they may have it to the full. Life to the full is possible, Jesus says, but only in him. Jesus says we have a need, a desire in our soul to be connected with our creator, and that is only possible through Jesus. You can live a good life here on earth. Don't get me wrong. You can have fun. You can have friends. You can laugh. You can drink. But we all have something in us that desires more. Blaise Pascal would call this that God-shaped hole of the heart. We all desire something more, and Jesus and Pascal would say it is only found in him. It's only found in Jesus. Fullness of life is found in Jesus alone and not the good life of today's day. And so point one is this. God exposes the false lie or the false idol of the good life. The Egyptians looked to happy for the good life while we look to the false idols of our day. But like with the Egyptians, God in his mercy rightly exposes those false idols in our lives and he draws us to him. But this is usually done through disappointment and heartache. But if it leads to God, it is good. So when we think good life, we don't think, of a, again, of a goddess happy on the mantle. 
But we think of finding the right spouse. We think of having the right number of kids, the right house, some extra money in our pocket for fun, some good friends. You can throw in there whatever else you think would make you happy. But there are times where we attain what we think we wanted and what we needed. We get it all. And then in that moment, we find ourselves disappointed and let down. We get married and we love our spouse, but we quickly realize they're not perfect. And they certainly haven't solved all of our problems and deficiencies. We go on that vacation that we think is going to provide us all the rest we need. It's going to solve all of our problems. And then we come back more exhausted than we left. We get that new car we've been saving up and dreaming about for years. And it's quieter than the beater we've been driving. But it still just gets us from point A to point B. It didn't solve the restlessness in our soul. And those moments are a gift from God. They are God in his mercy exposing our idolatry and calling us to obey him and trust him with all of our lives. And then in that moment, we are left with a choice. Follow God or harden our hearts and double down on our idols. Let's see how this plays out here. So all of, all of the water in the Nile turns to blood. But not only that, but all the water in Egypt turns to blood. They once had an abundance of water, and now it's all nasty and cannot be drank. Now, we're blessed to live in Wyoming where we, we have some pretty good water that flows from our taps. But if you have traveled to other parts of the world or other parts of the country, there are some places with downright nasty water that comes from the tap. I will never forget the first time I traveled to Dallas, Texas, and I ran a bath for my son. And that water felt so smelled so strongly of sulfur, you would, have, you would have thought you were on the banks of the river in Thermopolis. Right? There was no way I was drinking that water. So imagine that, but way worse. And so surely at this point, we would think, well, well, Pharaoh must have recognized that the good life, that his God is happy, was false, and he would repent and turn to God and ask him to stop this. Surely that would be his response when he recognized the futility of his ways. But Pharaoh doesn't humble himself. Instead, he calls in his magicians, and they are able to replicate the act to some sort of degree. And so he is satisfied believing that his ways and his gods are just as good as the God of the Hebrews. The one true God who is creator and sustainer. And then look at verse 24. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. The Nile was undrinkable, so Pharaoh has the people dig a ditch along the river, and there they can find enough dirty water that is at least drinkable. God has exposed the false God, but instead of humbling himself, he hardens his heart towards God, and he trusts in his own ways in vain. He is willing to give up the mighty river for dirty water in a ditch as opposed to surrendering to God. He has grown satisfied with less than, with dirty water, and we do the same thing. When God exposes our false pursuits, we, are more, we more often than not harden our hearts and trust our own ways, and we grow satisfied with less. Fullness of life wasn't found in my marriage, in my job, in my hobbies, so I just start looking elsewhere instead of surrendering and turning to God. And so, friends, if you are here today and life has let you down, then my plea to you is to obey God and to trust him with whatever it is you're holding on to. And if you're here and you've never surrendered your life and trusted God with your future, with your eternity, then I would encourage you to do that today. And then if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and there's an area of your life that God has exposed and he's calling you to trust him and obey him in, would you do that today instead of fighting him?
If God has exposed something, then don't harden your heart like Pharaoh, but instead trust it and surrender it to God. Because there's more plagues coming for Pharaoh when he hardens his heart. God in his mercy is going to continue to reveal himself and expose the false nature of Pharaoh's gods. Let's look at, ver- let's look at plague number two. We're in chapter eight, verse one now. Seven days passed since the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile's going to teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Look at that progression. They're going to be in the Nile. Then they're going to be in your houses. Then they're going to be in your bedroom and on your bed. Then they're going to be in your ovens. They're going to be in your kneading troughs. They're going to be on all the people. Now, I've never lived around a lot of frogs, but I've touched one or two in my day. And I don't want those things on my bed, and I don't want them anywhere near my kneading trough, right? One other note on this. The NIV says officials. Most other translations say servants. And who were the Egyptian servants? It was the Hebrew people. They were not immune to this plague or to the trial of the previous plague. Verse 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and they covered the land. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Note here that the magicians, like in the former plague, they were able by their dark arts to somehow recreate the plague in some manner. But they weren't able to alleviate the plague, right? They just made matters worse. They sent more plague and more frogs on the land. Pharaoh's ways, his resources, his knowledge could not solve or make the problem better. Only God had that power. And this is going to lead Pharaoh to at least momentarily ask God for help. And this is so often us as well. When trial arises, we do all we can to solve it on our own power. And I don't know about you, but I typically just make that problem worse. And then it's only at that point, after I've tried everything I can do, that I will turn to God. Verse 8, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said, And so for the first time, we see at least a recognition of the power of Moses and Aaron's God. Pharaoh recognizes that these are from him. He thinks, well, maybe I can use him or manipulate him to get rid of these frogs. I can't imagine that. Maybe I can use their God to return my land and my life back to normal. Verse 10, Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is nobody like the Lord our God. There's that phrase again. The frogs will leave you in your houses, your officials, and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. Again, we see that this is so that Pharaoh and the Egyptian people may know the one true God. This is, not, this is mercy, not vengeance. It is God alone that is God, that is creator, that offers eternal life. So him exposing their false pursuits and our false pursuits, it's mercy, not vengeance. He's offering them and us fullness of life, eternal life, which is found in him alone. God is opening their eyes and our eyes to a need for a Savior. Verse 12. 
After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Don't we do that same thing? We turn to God. We return to church when things are hard and falling apart. But as soon as things get better, we don't give thanks to God and double down on our faith. But we harden our heart. We take credit for the change and we go our own way. We pat ourselves on the back for weathering the storm, for overcoming the hardship, and we return to life as normal, just as Pharaoh did. So let's, let's look at this plague real quick. So the frog god of Egypt was the god Haket. And Haket was the god of the fruitfulness in the land. So if you needed fruitfulness in area of your, any area of your life, you would go and worship before Haket. And when I think fruitfulness, I think of this desire that we all have on some level to, to make a difference, to, to leave an impact, to do something great. And we believe, and in our culture, we are told that in my power, I can do anything and I can change the world. We believe that fruitfulness, productivity is all about I, because we live in a post-truth world, and I am the center of the universe. And Pharaoh believed that same thing. He was creating, he was building, he was producing. He was the leader of the greatest empire in the world. So he was accomplishing this. But what we see in this plague is that it can all come to a halt with one word from the God of the universe. Pharaoh wasn't all powerful and neither are we. So point two is this. God exposes the lie of the fruitful life. Now don't get me wrong. Just like with a good life, we can absolutely work hard and get a promotion We can save up for that awesome car or the nice house. We can do that if God allows. We can eat the right things. We can exercise. We can do a lot of sit-ups and crunches and lose weight, maybe even get a six-pack. We can accomplish things in our power, but even all of those things are temporary. I was watching The Office this week. Uh, And if you're familiar with The Office, I was watching the Fun Run episode. And in this episode, the boss, Michael Scott, has created a fun run fundraiser for rabies. Well, it gets to the end of this run, and he has eaten a ton of Alfredo. He has drank no water in the race, and he can't finish the race, and he breaks down on the sidewalk. And in that moment, he recognizes that there are all these problems in the world, and he can't solve them on his own. And he goes in this monologue, and he says, There are people all over the world who have all sorts of problems and afflictions and diseases. There are people that are deformed, and they're abnormal, and they're illiterate, and they're ugly. He says, symphonies don't have money, public TV is bust, and I can't do anything about it. I can't, you know. He says, there's just one of me, and there's a thousand of them, and rabies wins. And Pam essentially says to Michael, you're right. You can't do anything about it. Here's what Solomon says about this subject of fruitfulness in our lives and our own power in Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes 1. Solomon says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He's a cheerful guy. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises. Solomon, the most wealthy, wisest, and one of the most powerful men in the world, comes to the point where he says it's all meaningless. He says, we can't do it on our own. 
And as you get a glimpse here and further, he, if you read on, he says, It is meaningless without God who is all things. This is what Jesus says about the subject in John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says, apart from him, you can do nothing. But on the other hand, he says, if you're in me, you will bear fruit. You will make an eternal difference. But it's dependent on him and not exclusive to ourselves. Last one, Jesus says in Mark 8, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Jesus says you can accomplish and conquer the world in your power, but what good is it if it costs you your soul, your eternity, your future? Pharaoh quite literally had conquered the world, but it was going to leave him empty and with nothing. Life, life to the fullest, Jesus would say, is only possible in him. Eternal life is only possible with him, and a life that makes an eternal difference is only possible in him. The rest, he in the Bible tells us, is meaningless. You can conquer the world, but in the end it will leave you empty. And this is what this plague and all the plagues are revealing to Pharaoh. So our final point is this. When I trust in me, my life is futile and fragile. But when I trust in God, life is abundant and it is eternal. In the end, Pharaoh is proven to be frail and vulnerable, and so are we. And God in his mercy will use times of sickness, tragedy, suffering, and heartache to reveal that reality to us. In times of comfort and good, it is easy to believe that we are in control, that we can do anything, that we are the masters of our own fate. But when things begin to unravel, we quickly realize just how vulnerable we are and how out of our control things are. And it's during those times that many of us, many of you first experienced faith in Jesus. It took a disruption for us to recognize our need for rescue, for a Savior. For others of us, that's why you're here today or you're watching online. Something in your life has hit rock bottom and it has left you searching for answers, for hope, for purpose. If that is you, that is God and his mercy beckoning you to follow after him and to trust in his authority, the source of truth. Him is the authority, the source of truth and leader of your life. And the Bible says that if you will turn and trust in Jesus, then you will be forgiven of your sins. You will inherit eternal life. And in Jesus, you will make an eternal difference. But it takes surrendering your authority, your control, your personal truth to follow after him. So will you allow whatever you're walking through to lead you to God? We mentioned it earlier, but maybe you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, but there's an area of your life where you have sought to maintain control. You have refused to surrender an area of your life to God and his ways and his truth. Perhaps God in his mercy is hit in those areas and he is calling you to surrender them to him today. Will you be faithful and surrender all of your life, not just portions of it? As Christians, many of us follow God, we worship God, we love God, as long as he leaves parts of our lives alone. But God doesn't desire to just be a Lord over a percentage of your life. He desires to be Lord over all of your life. So is God calling you and leading you to surrender? And will you follow and trust him? The Bible tells us he is worthy. He is trustworthy. He is good. He is able. And in him is abundant life. For Pharaoh, he got this wake-up call, and it led him to call out to God for help. 
And when Pharaoh humbles himself and asks God for help, God provides and he stops the plague. But when the trial halts, Pharaoh once again hardens his heart. He forgets about God and he goes his own way. And that's the temptation for each and every one of us. When things get better, when life is going good, when we are comfortable, when we are prosperous, it is easy to begin believing the lie that it's all because of me and for me. And we begin to trust in ourselves as opposed to God. When the frogs come, Pharaoh asks God for help. But when they stop, he once again sees himself as Lord, the hero and captain of his life. Friends, you and I were not created, nor are we capable of playing the role of God. We don't make great gods because we're not able. But God in his mercy has revealed that to us today, and he is calling each and every one of us to humble ourselves and find our hope, our future, our life in him alone. We'll touch on a few more plagues next week, but for now I'm going to stop here. And in a few moments, Melinda's going to come, and, and she's going to play for us, and we're going to be given a chance to respond. Again, we live in a culture that says, I can do anything. It says, I can accomplish anything. I can be anything. But if we get beyond those really cool posters and those marketing slogans, and we think about what we know objectively, we know that's not true. I dreamt of being a basketball, professional basketball player as an elementary school kid. But there was no amount of hard work, coaching, training, or equipment that was going to make this 5'8", 5'9", frame with okay athletic ability into an NBA athlete. It just wasn't a reality. That's not the objective truth. I wasn't the master of my own fate, and that's all right. Because God had other plans that were better, and, and they've afforded me different opportunities. And the same is true for you and your family. We ultimately see this played out in our eternity. The Bible tells us there's nothing we can do in our own power to earn our way to God. We cannot do enough good things. We cannot help enough old ladies across the street. We can't give away enough money to earn our way to God. It's simply not possible. We are not the masters of our eternal destiny. The Bible tells us that God and his love and his grace has made a way. He sent Jesus who lived the sinless life we couldn't live to die the death that my sins and your sins deserved. There was no way for us to earn heaven, so God sent Jesus to earn it for us. And in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus made a way for us to be made right with God and to inherit eternal life with him. All we have to do is receive that gift and surrender our lives and follow after him. But again, that takes humility. That takes recognizing and admitting I can't do it on my own. It means admitting I have a need. And it means recognizing that God's ways and his truth is greater than my own. God in his mercy used trial to reveal Pharaoh's lacking and his need to him. And in the same way, God is using trials and pain to reveal our need for him today. And so my call on us today, no matter where we are in life, is to surrender and follow after God and trust that his ways, his truth is better than our own. And so just a second, Melinda's going to play and we'll respond. But if you're here today and you have never Follow Jesus with your life. You've never surrendered your authority and said, I want to follow after you. I'd encourage you to do that today. The Bible says that if you will surrender and you will make him Lord, God of your life, he is faithful to forgive. He is faithful to forgive you of your sins. He is faithful to give you abundant life. He is faithful to give you eternal life. 
All you have to do is submit and follow after him. You can do that in your seat. You can just pray, God, I, I believe you are who you said you are. I believe you sent Jesus and he died the death I deserved. I believe he rose victorious over that grave. I want to follow Jesus the rest of my days. The Bible says if you do that, he is faithful to forgive. Or maybe you're here today and you have done that before, but you have gone your own way. You believe the lie that you are the master of your own faith, that you are the God of the universe. You just need to repent and say, God, I'm sorry, but I want to follow after you. That could be in all of life or that could be in an area of your life. Whatever God's calling you to do, would you submit and surrender today? I'm going to pray for us. And when I, after I pray, Melinda's going to play. And we're just going to take a few minutes, each of us, just to bow our heads and to speak to God. God, we thank you for your great mercy in our lives. Your mercy that is anew each and every morning. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. We're thankful that you, that when we could not earn heaven, you sent Jesus to earn it for us. We thank you that Jesus lived the life I couldn't live, that he died the death I deserved. He rose victorious over death and offers that life to me. So God, I pray that you would move in our hearts, that you would reveal yourself to us, and whatever it is you're calling us to surrender, will we surrender and trust it to you? Will we be a people that, that give you all our lives, that follow you completely, that allow you to be Lord and that we submit to your truth and not our own? So God, would you reveal, would you speak to us, and would you give us the courage to follow? God, we love you. It's your name we pray, amen. Lord, we thank you that you are good. God, I thank you personally for those times in my life where you have used trial to reveal um, my false idols and false pursuits. Lord, we thank you that you are the solid rock in which we can, we can stand confidently. We thank you that you offer abundant life to any and all, Lord, and that our future is secure in you. God, would you continue to work in our hearts this week, Lord, and we, we continue to be a people that surrender and follow after you in all aspects. God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, thank you again so much for being here today. Um, if you're new to Living Hope Church, there should be a welcome card somewhere in the vicinity of you. Uh, if you wouldn't mind filling that out, and then there's a box on that back table. If you place it in there, that's uh, uh, we'd really appreciate it. That's also you can place your tithes and offerings if you consider this your church uh, home. Um, in terms of announcements, we have youth group uh, here at the church from 6 to 7 on Wednesday night. Uh, we have kids camp and uh, youth camp coming up on Casper Mountain 
That information is on the back of your sheet. If you have children that are wanting to go to those, come see me. I've got the, the uh, registration forms for you, um, and we will uh, get them signed up. And then we have Vacation Bible School coming up here at, the, at our church, August 1st to 4th. That's open for your children to sign up online. And then we're also taking a mission trip to Labarge June 28th and 29th to help them um, host uh, a VBS there. So thank you so much for being here. If you have questions about any of those things, you can come talk to me. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we hope to see you again next week. Thank you.